Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Happy Revenge of the Fifth to all those who celebrate. It's a Star Wars thing. More on that later. Got a great lineup here in May with Rodrigo Gordillo and Mike Philbrick of Resolve Asset Management on to set the record straight of what is and what isn't risk parity. Then a super interesting chat with Anthony Zhang, who was paid by Peter Thiel not to go to college. And that's maybe the least interesting thing about him. Stay tuned for those drop in next two weeks. For today's pod, we're joined by Noel Smith, the managing partner and chief investment officer of Convex AM. We had way too good of a time on this one, talking through stories of his days trading in Chicago's option pits, to the founding of electronic market maker Gecko, to having 50 traders under him as a partner in a prop trading firm, before we even got to his volatility trading in this current market. So with all that on the table, we're splitting this into two parts. Part one will be retelling of the glory days on the CBOE floor and what making markets and gaining edge and options was really like. And part two is talking through Noel's current strategy with ball arb, dispersion, rates, fall, and more which is sort of his best ideas after 30 years of trading options. So let's get on to part one. Send it. This episode is brought to you by our Ag Focus podcast. That's Ag is in Agriculture. Podcast is named The Hedged Edge. We talk a little bit about excellent traders and markets like hogs on this pod with Noel. Um, what makes markets like that, like wheat, like cotton, corn, and more move? Who are the players? What does the future look like? Go find out over at The Hedged Edge. Find it on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Okay, we're here with Noel Smith, coming to us from his somewhat new locale in Lake Tahoe. Welcome, Noel. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, So, excuse the t-shirt. We're doing a bit of a Star Wars celebration this week. Uh, May the 4th, you know that? Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. I do. Um, and so I don't know if you saw, we did a uh, Jedi Evolve poster last year for May the 4th, uh, and you weren't on it. I didn't know you really yet. So apologies for that. I saw it and I was like, all right, okay. A lot of, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of interesting people on that poster. Who would you be? Which, which Jedi would you want to be? You know, there, there's so many, uh, I, I want to say something like, you know, something corny like Jabba. I'll be, you know, yeah. the, the, the weirdo. Uh, you know, the, the, when I was a kid, Han Solo, I thought was the coolest. So I'll stick with that. I always thought of, so first off, I saw Star Wars in the theater when it came out and yeah. my like, you know, eight, nine year old brain or whatever it was just blew apart. I thought it was amazing. And then, um, you know, when the subsequent two movies came out, same, but a lot of the stuff, you know, in the most recent, probably 10 years, I could care less. I thought it was just so overdone and even kind of hard to follow. Yeah. And the new ones were basically just remakes with up, upgraded uh, sci-fi or. Um... Yeah, exactly special effects um so i'll give out our listeners quick ps go to our twitter and our rcm alts retweet a link to this pod with the hashtag revenge of the fifth it'll actually come out on the 5th of may so retweet that and we'll send you one of the posters um so tahoe let's talk quickly favorite ski spot there weirdly i live right by heavenly but i like to go to kirkwood more so mount rose which nobody really goes to that doesn't live in either carson city or reno is really good. Um, and Kirkwood is probably the best overall. I've never heavily is probably Rose. the Mount Rose is over by Incline Village, which is oh yeah, okay. you know, billionaires row, so to speak. You know, if you want to spend six thousand bucks a square foot on a house, that's a great place to do it. And Mount Rose is kind of somewhere between Reno and Incline Village, Nevada. And now they just renamed Squaw Valley, right? 
Yeah, they change it to Palisades Tahoe. Um, it's kind of, you know, if, if Tahoe is a circle, kind of a clock, uh, Squaw Valley slash Palisades is at 10 o'clock. Incline Village is at one o'clock. And I live at roughly six o'clock. Six o'clock. Got it. Yeah. And so, and you're on the California side or Nevada side? Sadly, the California side. <laughs> yeah. And so this is interesting to me, right? Super smart guy. All you read about, if you look too far into Twitter, right? Of like, no one ever would live in California or Illinois or these tax states. So when you're right there on the border, what's the, what's the excuse? Just um, comments. It's everything is common sense. So when I first came here, I was actually astounded that California was um, much more expensive than Nevada. So I really tried to find people to give me a straight answer as to, you know, why would California trade over Nevada? You'd think at, at a minimum, it would arm out sort of yeah. kind of right. And for the longest time, it didn't arm out. And now it's kind of gone the other way. Nevada is more expensive than California. And pretty much people that have the means or the resources, if they have the ability, they do move to Nevada or they just buy a place in Nevada. Um, on my end of things, why I live right by the border, but don't live in Nevada, it was availability of the house I have. The house I have you know, ticked a lot of boxes and it was on the California side. And despite that detriment, it was still a do overall. Uh, right. So it's just like there's limits to, we can write textbooks and read blog posts on like, why would you live there? But there's limits to it, right? There's only so many houses. There's only, right. you want the right view. You want the right everything. Right. Um, I, I live a hundred yards from the actual lakefront, um, which is pretty rare. And, you know, there's so there's a lot of boxes that it's ticking in that regard for me and my family and stuff. So my kids want to go to the beach. It's a, you know, 15 second walk. Um, now what's better out there, summer or winter? Summer for sure. Yeah. Getting yeah. in the lake. You know, the lake, especially where I live is really shallow. So it's, you know, it's very swimmable for kids and kayaks and all that kind of stuff. And I love to mountain bike. So there's just, you know, endless trails for that. And um, it's just really nice. And it's, you know, pretty cool summer or summer uh, nighttime evening. Yeah. And the days can get pretty hot. And there's just a lot to explore. I mean, the mountain range is, is gigantic. And if you like to explore and you like to be outside, and you like to go check out waterfalls, and all that kind of stuff. It's here. Yeah. Speaking my language. Um we did last year, we were in uh, Colorado and did some of the downhill mountain biking on the yeah. ski slopes with the big bikes and the pad mm -hmm. looked like a stormtrooper. speaking of Star Wars. Um, when they have the greens and blues and blacks, right? So we did a green, yeah. my son and I did a blue. We're like, let's check out the black. But on the side of it says aerials required. I'm like, all right, we're not doing the black. So do you do some of that stuff? Do you do the ones that require the aerials? Yes. Uh, nice. I've, I, I spend... Usually at least one or two days a week, just at jump parks. I, I'll go to, you know, you see these bike parks where basically it's a bunch of like, you know, 14 year old kids who've never been hurt. And I try to do all the same jumps, you know, <laughs> I try to hit that stuff. And mainly because it's like the 12 year old in me that never was good at it. And I'm like, damn it. I want to finally get good at something that bugged me when I was a kid. Cause I wasn't that good at it. And so now, yeah, I do the, the, the downhill bike park here, which is North star on the North side. And then there's tons of trails down by me as well that have, big gnarly jumps. And so that always amazes me of like, here you are professional risk manager, not to belittle it. Right. But like your whole job's yeah. not to blow up and have some left tail event, but it seems jumping the bike. Some of these big aerials is huge left tail risk. So how do you, how do you reconcile it, those? So my wife asked me this all the time. My business partner asked me this, this all the time. Um, it is one of those things where it's like, you know, it is just one of the most fun things that I've done and I've done a lot of crazy stuff. Um, and it's just, it's, you're outside. It's like, imagine hiking, but 
you know, so you're outside enjoying nature and all this stuff, but then just, you're just, you know, a giant cloud of meth is thrown over your head and everything is more exciting and more coming at you a thousand times faster. It's kind of like that, you know, you get some of the outside um, peacefulness, but yet you get a lot of the rowdiness and excitement that you can only get by, you know, bombing down a mountain by yourself most of the time. And if you crash, you know, you're waking up on the back end of a bear. That's it. Yeah. You need the Apple watch, right? That commercial who's like the guy crashed in the woods. No, I get it. That's why I go 65 miles an hour down a mountain on skis. Um, Right. You get that adrenaline rush, but something in my brain is like, well, it's not that dangerous. It's not that big of a left tail. Um, But you know, one, one in a million chance you break something important like your neck. I've broken, I've broken bones. This time last year, I, I, crashed I, broke, broke several bones in your what arm my, my scapula and my ribs and I, and I, I got knocked out ouch but you woke yeah. up <laughs> i did i did here i am so let's move into your background a little so you come to asset management in sort of a roundabout way uh mm-hmm. trading your own money first a couple decades was it before venturing into the world of other people's money so let's yeah, let's start with the trading floor. How'd you end up standing in a circle with a bunch of guys yelling at the top of your lungs? So um, a couple guys that I knew that that came out of Susquehanna wanted to start a company, and they asked me if I would join them. And we started trading at the CBOE, and our initial backer was a guy by the name of Stafford, and he's you know kind of an old school options guy, not the younger Stafford that was involved with Ronin, but his dad. Yeah, and um, we just took a very small amount of money by today's standards, like $150,000 of our own money, plus a little bit of backing from them and decided to go for it. That was really it. So when I first started, uh, I know what everybody knows in the beginning, which is nothing <laughs> and just did my best. I mean, my main job was getting tacos and things like that. And, but where'd you come out of? You were straight out of school or you were doing something else? So I was a biochemistry major uh, with focus on neuroscience and, and physics. And my attention at the time was to become a, a surgeon. So what I did is I worked in surgical wards. I knew several surgeons for, you know, for many years at that point, even already. Uh, I worked in neuroscience at this place called Beckman Institute at University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And um, that was the plan. And then I, for logical reasons, had to, to sidetrack, got a little bit involved in finance with the intention of continuing down my physician path, and then was just so successful, way more fast than I anticipated that it really just made me challenge the math of the situation. You know, I figured, okay, if I go to medical school, it's going to cost me a couple hundred grand at the time. Um, plus, you know, eight years of residency, I wouldn't make any money till I'm like late thirties. And I was already in a situation where I could make money from that, you know, accelerated period um, in the present. And it's not that it's all about money, but I also didn't come from any money. So the idea of having any discretionary money yeah. was just like out- outrageous to me. The idea that I could afford to buy something that I didn't immediately need was, was crazy. So it really just made me uh, you know, think it through. And so I decided to pursue a, a career in finance instead. And cool. options, options is the world where you can, if you're good at it, you can do really well. And you also don't need to work you know, 95 hours a week like a, a venture capital guy from Goldman or something like that. Not to mention a surgeon. Um, exactly. <laughs> or as they're training. Wait, but so you were making money trading off the floor? Where were you trading before you went? to? So my first job was as, as a stockbroker and I did it, Got it. Just, okay. just out of school. And it was one of those things where a stockbroker is very linear of your income to your effort. So you're basically a salesperson 
and you try to convince people to do what you tell them to do. And I was good enough at that to make better money than really any of my peers, um, which, you know, I cracked six figures in, you know, 1995 and relative to my peer group, you know, guys that were graduating and, you know, from very good schools making 35 grand a year. And that was big money. Um, you know, I just was able to do something that I didn't think I could do. So I really just reassessed the whole situation. And then, so your Susquehanna guys said, Hey, this guy's smart and he knows a little bit of finance. Get in here. I think, um, I don't know. I think they thought I was smart enough. I guess is probably a better answer. (laughs) Smart enough. Yeah. Yeah, Smart enough. (laughs) And there's, there's, this this is one thing I've hired a lot of guys. I've hired over a hundred guys and you really can't teach ambition. You can teach math. You can teach options, you know, knowledge. You can teach, you know, teach all kinds of stuff. But you, the, I, I've had guys, and this is a you know tangent on a tangent, um, that are genetically more qualified to trade for me than other guys. But the guys that just really wanted to be there, almost inevitably, have been more successful than the guys that maybe had a little bit more uh, standard equipment upstairs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the guys who just had a more of a burning desire and more ambition tend to be more successful. And I think that was part of why you know, the guys that asked me to join them did. And who was it? The, uh, Bear Stearns guy or someone of that ilk was, he wanted PhDs, poor, hungry, and driven. Um, well, I think that was, uh, Gordon Gecko. <laughs> uh, he might've, I think he stole it from, uh, maybe it was Solomon brothers, but one of those firms, we'll look it up, yeah. put it in the show yeah. notes. Um, so give us some of the stories from the training floor. So these guys start, you're there, you're actually in the pit. What, what pit were you in? Um, my first pit was Sears and I went into Sears because Sears. The, the, the guys were the most nice. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's a lot, a lot of new traders go to that pit. We put all of our new guys into Sears because some of the, the best pits, the guys were vicious. They would just blast you every opportunity possible. And Sears, uh, the guys were just nice, cool dudes. And, you know, you could kind of stroll in there and, um, you know, they wouldn't, you know, welcome you, but they wouldn't haze you as hard as some of the, the other pits. And typically when you walk into a pit, think about it like there's a, you know, a pie sitting on the table, right? And, you know, you walk up with a fork, you're like, hey guys, can I have some too? And they're like, no, get out of here. Yeah. You know, so exactly. Nobody's going to invite you to have some of their pie because the pie isn't going to increase just because you're there. Um, so usually the pits where the, the, the biggest helping of pie was at were the most aggressive about getting you out of there. And, you know, they chased away a lot of guys. And so for me, I started in Sears and I worked my way up to, uh, at the time, Coke, uh, symbol KO. And there was also, you know, AT&T. And then um, I was end up, ended up, there's actually a good uh, picture I have, which they took for the CBOE um, annual report or whatever else. It's me, Pete Nigerian sitting right next to me, standing right next to me. And we're in the front of the AOL pit, which at the time was like, you know, the hottest name on the planet. And that, that was when I was trading real size and we could actually kind of move around. And that was a luxury that I didn't even know I could do. Um, once I had enough status as a floor trader, I could like walk into a pit and not get hazed anymore because they knew I wouldn't really just be an idiot and just, be, you know, soak up bandwidth. Yeah. yeah. Um, that comes back to our earlier theme of like the limits to arbitrage. Like, why didn't the sharks come into the Sears pit? You think they'd just walk over there and take advantage of all those nice guys? Because there wasn't as much edge. Um, yeah. You know, Sears paper wasn't all that great. Uh, what was the other name? Oh, it was Dow. Not, uh, not Dow Chemical, but Dow Corning. And um, the biggest trade in that pit was when they had a, a judgment on breast implants because there was a, this is the reason that in the US, silicone breast 
implants went away for a long time is because there's this gigantic lawsuit. And that, that news came out one day in the pit where they basically said that silicone's fine. And the stock went crazy. And there's a lot of opportunity for the next, you know, week or so. But other than that, I mean, Sears is like, you know, didn't really trade much. Yeah. And you're trading how? So you're filling orders for brokers or you're trading your own account? Well, you're a market maker and you're doing both. Um, you're not filling orders for brokers. A broker, what they do is they initiate orders from somebody else. So say, for instance, um, you know, you're a, a pension fund at Gold, and they have an account at Goldman Sachs and you say, okay, you know, we've got you know, 10 million shares of Microsoft and we want to buy you know, 10,000 put spreads. So what they do is they you know, call up the Goldman broker that represents that paper on the floor. And then the Goldman broker will walk into the Microsoft pit in that example, or Sears in my example, and say, okay, I want to do you know, 10,000 spreads. What price can I get these spreads done? And you know, what else? Well, how can I get this order filled is the point. And are you, is everyone salivating when that guy walks into the pit? No, not at <laughs> all. You know, no? So I mean, that, that's actually a big part of trading in general is knowing you know, when the counterparty is right or wrong. And that actual mental process is part of when you go from being a market maker to more of a, a trader and trying to figure out why, what is, what is their point? Why are they right? Because you know you sit there and you're like, okay, I'll buy a bunch of options. I'll buy a bunch of options because they're selling them. And at some point, you think to yourself, well, maybe volatility is too high, and they're right. Yeah. Or maybe you know they have a directional opinion, or maybe there is a a breast implant news announcement that has been leaked and pe- people know about it. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that people want to do things, and it's really not that different today. Um, it's a little harder because you can't just just pick and choose the brokers, right? And the yeah. brokers don't tell you what they're doing. They probably don't even know. And, um, you know, if, if a guy is always right, then that's a, you know, a, a, it's just as useful in the opposite, right? If somebody's always wrong, it's just as good as being always right. You can just bet against them. Yeah. I asked some of these funds that trade these like esoteric stuff with the banks, French banks, and like take them to the cleaners every three years. Like, don't you run out of, of suckers basically, right? Like if you keep printing so, money on all those trades, you know, those a, lot of, a lot of those complex guys are options. Guys. Yeah. Well, that's just it. So you know, if you look at some of these banks, typically who are the traders at these banks? Um, it's usually junior guys that don't fully understand the, the spectrum of risk. And it's not so much that you can beat up the same guys again and again. It's just there's the new guys, right? There's new guys. They just move on. <laughs> yeah. So those guys either get they fired lost or the bank a billion and got fired. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. So you know, trading with banks is some of the best paper that was ever there. Um, so a few definitions. So paper. That's just, as you said, this guy's coming in to do 10,000 put spreads. That's the quote unquote paper. It's just an order. Say an order to buy options or sell options, whatever. Um, And then as a market maker, so that person comes in 10,000 put spreads as a market maker, what are your, what, what are you thinking to do there? So if you pull up on your Robinhood app, um, you know, what is the price of a, uh, a Tesla call, right? And you'll see a market, you know, like $50 bid at $52. Well, who comes up with the $50? Why isn't it 49? Why isn't it 40? Why isn't it yeah. 90? Somebody has to make a decision as to what is the best price that they're willing to pay for these options or the best price they're willing to sell these options for. That person is making a market. They're creating a bid offer spread where you can buy and sell. And that's what a market maker's job is to do. And their general function is to try to buy on the bid and then hedge off somewhere in the middle or sell on the offer and hedge off somewhere in the middle. And they're not really trying to wail on the client or the customer. They're trying to just make a tiny spread 
as often as possible so that they can make a, a good living as well. Right. A hundred times a day, just take out yeah. a, a penny. So on that type of order, you're talking about what was the spread there? A couple bucks? Big, big trades usually get chopped really hard. So yeah. realistically, what happens is if a guy has 10,000 Microsoft spreads, they're like, okay, I have 10,000 spreads, you know, 8,500 of them are going to cross on the Philex. And, um, you know, we have 1,500 left we can do right here. We're going to do them for a quarter. Who wants them? The other side of those trades is guy comes in and is willing to pay anything for like a little biotech name. And then, you know, you know, they're going to have an FDA announcement or something like that. And that paper is very, um, that trade is very likely to be right in their way. So you're very skeptical to trade with them. Uh, right. And then, cause you can't even get the hedge off perhaps. So talk a little bit exactly. about that of the market makers. So you're saying, cool, I'll fill your 10,000, say it all came to you. Um, now, you have to delta hedge it basically to keep yourself flat. So I have, I have one really good trading story about that. Um, yeah. I, was, I was in a, a relatively small pit. And this is when I was a pretty senior trader. So I knew what I was doing. And um, the Goldman broker comes into this pit. There's only like six guys in this pit. And this is a very uh, new, this is during the internet craze. And I, I forget exactly what the price of the stock was. It doesn't really, let's just make it a hundred dollars. It wasn't a hundred dollars. Okay. Let's just yeah. say it was a hundred dollars. Guy comes in and is like, okay, what's your market in these calls? And it was a very high vol name. And let's just say it was like a, you know, $20 bid on these calls. He's like, fine, I'll sell you, you know, a hundred at $20. I'm like, okay, well, I, this is a very thin name. I'll buy, I'll buy 50. And I try to get my hedge off. He's like, how are you coming out? Meaning like, what's your new market after this trade has just already commenced? And I said, well, I don't know, um, you know, $18 bid now, you know, I just paid 20, I'll pay 18 for the next you know, round. He's like, fine, I got hundred to go. How many, how many you want? I'm like 50. He's like, okay, <laughs> fine. How are you coming out? I'm like, really? So you still want to sell me more? And I'm like, fine, I'll pay, you know, $16. And now I'm trying to get my hedge off. Things are, you know, the balls are in the air, the eggs are on the stove, it's busy. And he's like, how are you coming out? I'm like, how many do you have? He's like, I got 500 more. I'm like, $15 bid. He's like, sold. I'm like, Shit. Uh-oh. Now I own them. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, how are you coming out? I'm like, $5 bid. And he's like, how many? I'm like, 500. He's like, sold. I'm like, holy shit. And this is under parity at this point. Yeah. So this, this trade on paper is ridiculously beyond amazing. By the time I was able to get my hedge off, it ended up being a break-even trade. But I had millions of dollars of theoretical edge that was evaporated in you know, 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Because he was just right. Mm. He, just, he knew the stock was going down and the options market was the place he was trying to express that opinion. And I had no idea. So he's selling, he was selling the calls. I missed him. He was selling the calls. I was buying, buying the calls. Them. I, and I was trying to sell stock and I was not able to get any shares for multiple dollars. Uh, um, and how does that work in that CBOE pit, actually? So you're trying to sell the stock. Do you have, to, you have a clerk there that can hammer it out? Like pre, yeah, that's pre-computers. So there was three, three real ways that uh, you did it. You did it with a, a broker that was usually physically located by you, a clerk that would translate, that would act as an intermediary, or you would have a computer. And we had all three, so whatever. Yeah. That was my, uh, when I worked at Board of Trade, I was in the bond pit as a clerk and my broker was a futures broker, but I was staring at the options pit. So all their right. delta edging, right? I was just the guy of like, buy 200, buy 400. Right. Um, right. And so I always like to talk about this for the people who weren't back in those days. So you, you knew how many you had to hedge. You had a little sheet in your pocket, right? Yes. All, all these option guys had sheets in their pocket. And basically that's telling you all your Greeks, 
for how many, however many strikes down? So what the sheets were, what the sheets did was it would uh, basically act as a matrix. So if you said that, you know, um, Apple, Apple didn't really trade back then. It was, it was basically bankrupt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, most people don't realize that, but Apple was almost bankrupt in the nineties. Uh, but say it was, uh, I don't know, AOL and the vol was, you know, 30. Well, you'd have, you'd run a list of strikes and prices out of 30 vol. And then you'd run a different list of strikes at 29 vol, 27 vol, 25 vol, or 35 vol, or 40 vol. And if it got too far out of range, you literally, you literally would leave the pit, go run new sheets, print yeah. them out, come <laughs> back down, and then you know, try to re-engage the marketplace. Uh, so it's all vol-based, wasn't price-based, or it's both, it's a matrix. It's, it's both, because vol and price are algebraically fungible. Yeah, yeah. So you can say that, you know, a 30 vol equals a dollar 50 on the option or a dollar 50 on the option equals a 30 vol. And once you do it enough, they're interchangeable. Um, so how many times did you have to go off your sheets? You go off your sheets for the best trades. So the best trades come into you and, um, you know, what happens is 90% of the time you look at your sheets and you get a, a good idea where things are. Um, you don't use your sheets that often after a while because you just kind of instinctively know. Hmm. Where, th- where things are. And um, then y- what you know versus what the market is offering you in data. Because say, for instance, the guy says, I, you know, I'll pay a dollar for these options and that equals 30 vol. But he say he wants to change that. Then you like you have the choice to either trade at his price or not. Because yeah. everyone around yeah. you is going to. So then you're put in a position to kind of noodle this stuff through. And where is it in the spectrum of the rest of your book as well? And that's, that's really when you go from being you know, kind of a market-making monkey, which is not all that easy in the first place, to really being a, a small portfolio manager. Because if you're trading everything in your pit, let's say that's you know, 10 to 20 different names, you already have a portfolio of those 20 names. And then you have to figure out what is the correlation between you know, AOL and Dell and Dell and you know, At Home or Lycos or whatever else. Those are real names I traded. Yeah. Um, did you do any pets.com, any of those guys? So pets.com actually was in Sears. Um, ah. <laughs> so that was when uh, I had a guy in that pit and I didn't trade pets, but he did. And um, that was, you know, it was just one of those stocks where everyone knew that it wasn't really a stock. It was like three dudes in a closet with a dream. And it was like, you know, a $90 stock. We're like, no puppet. way. Yeah. And so the funny thing is actually from that era, I had um, a, a physical trading ticket of my stock fill and I had bought 10,000 shares of Yahoo at $499. And the, the receipt was still in my breast pocket. And uh, I didn't find it until years later when Yahoo was like, you know, got 40 bucks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it wasn't, I wasn't trying to get long that much Yahoo. It was a hedging trade, but it was just very laughable to see that years after the fact. Where you should frame that, should put that up. Kind of know where it is. And talk about that real quick. That's interesting. I've never actually knew that I was a board of trade guy, not a CBOE guy, but I'm picturing there's, pits for every stock way too no. many you'd have to have way too many pits so right right so how many stocks were in each pit so the cboe uh, management tried to put like one or two super busy stocks in each pit and then you know it would have you know eight or nine somewhat boring stocks and every now and then one of the boring stocks would have a takeout or become hard to borrow or something like that and um you know so usually as i'm saying you had 10 to 20 names in any one given pit and that is really you know the, the basis, the boot camp for becoming a portfolio manager, because that's really yeah. what you're doing. Right. So dig into that a little bit. So you have all these positions. You didn't have to. Were there guys who just stood in that pit and just traded one name to keep it yes. simple? Yeah. Yes. A lot. So your brain started going, hey, I could trade all these things. 
in a little mini portfolio. But to your point, you're way off your sheet. Then there is no sheet for that. You have to correct. You're mentally doing that math. I'm like, to. okay, I'm long this much AOL. I'm long this much. I got a Delta yeah. hedge these. And then it's all, it's all fungible in your head of like, okay, if I sell some uh, AOL, I can hedge these other uh, calls that I bought. Absolutely. So if you know that there is, you know, a relationship between, you know, AOL and XYZ and that relationship is usually, you know, 80% or maybe 120% yeah. in beta, beta terms, um, then you have to figure that out and you have to kind of know where your risks really are. And what happens if they all go down? What happens if they all go up? What happens if your longs go down, your shorts go up? It happens all the time. So when correlations change, that can screw you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's the biggest risk there, one of the biggest risks. Um, but two, how, where in this, what years were these? And when did you start to move to the computer to do all this work? So um, this is, you know, the mid and late 90s. And then we started using computers pretty early on. I didn't use, I only used paper sheets for a little while. Um, and just by virtue of chance, when I showed up is when computers started to exist on the floor because um, you needed the connectivity as well, right? And then we also had these little, they were called rays, uh, raise trades, which was like a retail uh, execution order system or whatever else. And trades would just hit you on your marketplace, which is actually the, the, the real birth of high-frequency trading. So high-frequency trading was born out of automated trading at the CBOE. And those two things are you know, very interconnected. Um, but you know, being able to hedge out your deltas on a computer was, it happened relatively fast in my life. And then after I started trading my whole pit, we started backing other guys. I started to try to like lord over other pits with, you know, you know, you had a guy in the pit next to you, like, okay, how's your AT&T position doing, Bob? How's your Microsoft position, position doing, you know, Steve? And, you know, you kind of figure out where everybody is in the matrix of things. And you realize that, well, the Goldman broker selling me options in AOL, the Goldman broker selling Microsoft options to Bob, and the Goldman broker is selling options to Steve. Maybe Vol is for sale. Maybe I should lower my bids. Mm. And that's when you start to become like, that's like 102 level portfolio manager, maybe even 103 level. Um, and how did, but so you're just using the computer as a tool at this point. It's not basically informing you, right? Um, it's just a tool. It gives me no information. Right. So how long after that till nowadays the Delta hedging can happen automatically, right? Yeah. I, I, all, all my deltas are done instantly. Um, yeah. How does it go? How do you start to get a big picture stuff? I didn't really get big picture stuff until I started lording over the whole firm. Um, so, you know, if we had a guy in every pit, uh, we had a guy in every pit in the CBOE, we had guys at the Board of Trade, we had guys at the Merck uh, trading Euro dollars, we had guys at the NYMEX, we had guys at the COMEX. And then as you become the hub of all this information, you start to have these big picture ideas. Um, and that is where the ideas and the experience really started to coalesce for me as to big picture ideas, fall is for sale, interest rates are moving. What does this mean you know, across the board when these things happen? And that's quite relevant to my current job, which is why I've been daydreaming about running outside money, I don't know, since 2003. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that. Sorry, I'm going to stick on the... Uh, so yeah. you, you went to a, basically a prop model, right? So you had all these guys inside the firm, all their P&Ls are sinking up, all their risk is sinking up. Yes. So that Goldman example, you're seeing them, they're selling in a whole bunch of names. Maybe they're even selling in rates of all and whatnot. So is that get put into the computer? Do you see it as a, as an alert or you're just taking that in into your human brain and saying, okay, this is happening. I need to reposition the whole firm this way. 
So it was both. Um, at the time, we cleared um, a company called Pax, and then we also had uh, Spear Leads. And the way they shocked, we, they would give us paper risks. So it would say, okay, you know, you had X amount of capital, now you have X amount of capital, and here's your risk on different matrices of shocks. And so we would kind of comb through these, these physical paper printouts, and we would say, okay, well, down 10%, vol up 30%, we are at this much risk. And then, you know, you, you keep this stuff in your head because if you don't, nobody yeah. will, right? It's just yeah. your job. So you start to get a really good picture. And when you stare at the same stuff all day, all the time, you get pretty accurate at it. And, you know, whether Microsoft Vol goes up a point or two is something you don't really remember, but unless you have a huge position in it, but the overall vega of the book, the overall gamma of the book, the overall theta of the book is totally relevant. And you're looking to, um, you know, mitigate that risk all the time. And did, so did you say, Hey, we're going to, I'm going from, but you, this was the same firm that you had joined up with, or did yes. you start out and say, I'm going to start my own prop firm? No, this was my, my own prop firm. I was an equity partner in this firm. Got it. But so to me, it's like, when did you go from, all right, I'm going to be a trader. I'm going to make a lot of money for myself to, was there a conscious decision there of like, Hey, I'm going to scale this with all these other guys. Or was it more of an yeah. intellectual exercise of like, Hey, I'm getting all this other information. We need to put it together. No, it was, it was more rudimentary than that. It was more like, okay, well, if I can make X amount of money in a pit in a given year, then if I have a guy in the pit next to me, maybe I can make two X, maybe even more. Yeah. So then you can extrapolate that to, you know, 30 guys in 30 pits. And all you really have to do is cover the, you know, the seat lease, which at the time was like 13 grand a month or something like that. And um, then you, if you have the excess capital and you have, you can take on the extra risk, you decide to back somebody else and then one becomes two and two become four and four become eight, et cetera. Right. But which Stafford, the aforementioned was doing the same thing at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, yes. A lot of different groups. So how did you differentiate yourself there? Like did, everyone's got the same sheets. Everyone's got the same knowledge, right? So it's funny, you know, I've, I've done a handful of interviews and nobody's ever asked me that question. And the real answer is way more disappointing than <laughs> Then a lot of people want to hear. Everyone right, wants I had to the hear. secret black box. Right. There is no black box that I know of. The only real black box is, is high frequency trading. And it's almost literally a black box in the sense that it's faster logic. Yeah. Um, but the quality and the timing of information is how we did better than our peer group. And what we did is just we got to know the brokers. We have to understand and we would keep track of like where the information came from and how good was the information or was it counterfactual information? Some brokers at that time constantly had, you know, cheaty paper, cheaty meaning they were trying to cheat the marketplace. They had insider information or something like that. And their trades almost always went their way. What does TD uh, stand for? Cheat. Like he's cheating at cards or something like cheaty. Cheaty. Like cheaty. Like, yeah, like, got it. like cheating paper. Got it. Um, C-H-E-A-T-Y. I, I thought you were saying like TD Ameritrade. No, no. no. Um, this, actually, TD was still Toronto Dominion Bank at the time. Exactly. Um, Which ended so, up buying Stafford, right? <laughs> did they buy Stafford? They bought Rohn. Uh, no, they bought all of Stafford, I believe. Oh, I didn't know that. Honestly, yeah. I've kind of forgot, I kind of forgot it. Um, so brokers that always have paper that cheats is just as useful that brokers that never have paper that cheats. Actually, it's probably more useful. So mm -hmm. what you do, if a guy wants to buy a thousand options, you know, you sell him 50 just to keep him happy and you go out and you buy as many shares as you can get your hands on. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. But if he's, if he's always right, you're probably going to lean yeah. into that just right. And who cares if he's actually cheating, right? If he's always right, it doesn't matter why he's always right. Just there you get, go. get in front of it. 
right? Like that was the whole concept behind the Goldman rule going into commodities, right? Of like, we know this flow is coming at this time every month. Get in front of it. Right, exactly. Um, which is interesting of like insider trading cases. Do they ever come down? Were you ever deposed or anything? Of like, hey, we're coming all yeah. the way down to the market maker level? I had one case where I was the largest shareholder of a stock that didn't work for the company. And I had some law firm call me up and be like, hey, you know, do you want to go to court and testify? I'm like, no, yeah. no, not at all. That it's like, well, how about, yeah. how about if we put you up in a $5,000 a night hotel and all these other things? I'm like, okay, fine. And this is actually a pretty interesting point that um, I think a lot of us older people come to. So I find myself in federal court and the other side was three guys. This is in Boston. So it was, a, 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 you know, all older guys, gray haired, you know, professor types, guy from Harvard, guy from MIT, another guy from Boston College. And they're all talking about me, but not to me. And there's like 50 people in court. This is not like, um, there's not a jury trial, right? This is yeah. uh, uh, not jury trial. Are they the expert it, witnesses on option yes. pricing? <laughs> yes, exactly. So um, this, is, this is such a seminal point in my life, and it's really guided me ever since. These guys were all talking about this stuff. And then my lawyers asked me, what do you think? Are they right or are they wrong? I'm like, I can tell you that these guys are wrong and I can prove it with math and graphs in 10 seconds. <laughs> and they're like, it's all we need to know. Boom, yeah. that's all we need to know. And I'm like, so, you know, you can study skiing on paper for a thousand years. You can say, okay, well, if the coefficient of drag on your, your wax is X and your, 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 your edge sharpness is Y and the, you know, the temperature outside is, is Q and you right. can come the up with all these... Hold. Yeah. Right, exactly. All these reasons why you should be able to ski, then get on skis, you know, and show me how to do it. Not so easy, is it? And it's exactly the same thing. And that has kind of guided me for so many years, which are people that are supposed experts in something are not practitioners. And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But a lot of times people that are only operate in the domain of intellect or theory are often terrible practitioners. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we say that all the time. You get a super smart coder quant mm -hmm. but you put them in front of live trades real people's money and they like deer in the headlights like oh absolutely true that's supposed to work this way so you have all these guys what was the peak number of guys in the prop firm what was it called third millennium third millennium trading um i don't know because we never actually you know did a little clicker count <laughs> uh but we probably had at at our largest time, probably about 65 guys, but we, I probably hired a hundred and something over the time period. So 60 and, in pits actually trading? In other words, like 65 guys or so on payroll every month that we had to take care of. But those, that also each had a P&L? Yes. Yeah. So, so were you ever thinking like, okay, I want to put uncorrelated return streams together or they're basically all doing the same trade just in different names? Uh, definitely number one, definitely uncorrelated strategies. So as you, you know, what happens is, 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 you know, say the, say the VIX goes from 30 to 15. Well, the volatility in all of the pits will go down. And so that's when, again, this is you know, the next level of going from being a market maker to a trader, to maybe a prop trader, to being more of a real portfolio manager, and then kind of a guy who runs a firm. And you start to see all of these things and you start to connect the dots as like, okay, well, if the paper's really hot in Euro dollars, what does that mean for my Goldman stocks? Well, actually, Euro dollars and Goldman do have a relationship because the shape of the yield curve for Goldman's lending program is completely affected by interest rates, and interest rates are being borne out to, to bear right now in Euro dollars. Okay, well, what part of the Euro dollar 
curve is most relevant to Goldman? Well, it's the front end. Okay, well, how much front end paper does Goldman have? And you start to suss all these ideas out. You're like, okay, there's a relationship. And you know, mm. we can probably make a trade here. But in real time or like over oh, a yeah. course of weeks or like you're sitting down with the whole, all those traders and saying, hey, this is what might be playing out? In real time or by end of day. Yeah. So, you know, you look at, you know, the euro dollar paper at end of day, you're like, okay, well, what's going on in euro dollars? Um, okay, well, they're implying an interest rate rise or whatever, right? Or yeah. maybe maybe a, a, a more accelerated interest rate rise than what the marketplace is currently pricing. Okay, well, if interest rates go up faster, where is it? What part of the yield curve is this most relevant to? And again, you have to figure it all out because, you know, interest rates are relevant to all kinds of things, everything. This blows my mind because, right? You're, everyone, you're on Twitter, you're reading blog posts, and you're like, oh, this euro dollars are signaling this. And you think about a trade for a few days. Like by the time you've read that on there and think about it, it's already been, right? There's market makers who have been there for a week already. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's fun. Um, and so, right, to me, it's like, this is this new concept of pods, right? Of Valiazny, all these other groups of like, hey, we're putting pods of traders together. But Mark, you know, uh, prop firms were doing this long before it became a, oh, a and we did, we did not invent that at, at all. So exactly, yeah. you know, we kind of knocked it off from Susquehanna, which is kind of the DNA that, you know, I have a trading DNA and I don't even really know who did it before Susquehanna, maybe O'Connell, um, maybe O'Connell. Yeah. I knew a guy named yeah. O'Connell, yeah. um, uh, O'Connor or Spear leads. Um, actually the O'Connell guy was the, uh, was the brother of an actor that was, uh, he was Robin. In the Batman movies. Uh, oh yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I forgot his name. name. Chris, he sit next to me. That, Chris O'Connor. Maybe, maybe yeah. I forget. But anyway, he, it's funny how the memory works. Uh, he was the guy who stood next to me in a pit, and whatever. There, you know, there's a their family up from Winnetka, but they're n- nice guys. Um, but anyway, so you start to figure these things out. So that's also kind of you know the genesis of my fund, which is once you start to see various trades, like say you have a euro dollar guy and you have a bond guy. Well, those two things are related. And then you have a guy that trades, you know. I don't know, cattle, right? Like I knew a guy that traded cattle. He was literally a rancher from Texas. Like the guy that would ride around on a horse and figure out cattle stuff. And then his information was as contemporaneous as you're going to get in the cattle world. And, uh, and I thought to myself as, as I got to, to know this guy, I'm like, I will never know more about cattle than this guy. So yeah. if you're trading against this guy, you're probably going to lose money bar- barring luck. I love, I asked, we have a few funds that do cattle or hog trading. And I asked those PMs, there's two, there's one right answer. I'm like, how come Citadel or Susquehanna, someone doesn't go pay the same ranchers, you know, and get this information. The incorrect answer is like, oh, they're my friends and they won't do it. The correct answer is it's not worth their time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they could easily go do that, get the same information. It's not worth their time. It's a limited yeah. market. And they're like, we don't need to do that. But so that was going to be one of my questions. Were these all option vol traders? Or did you have a guy who was like, picking stocks or going outright long natural gas. We, we have never had, we, well, we've taken deltas and everything all the time. So okay. um, to, so if you have an, uh, an opinion in natural gas, you don't have to express it in the options marketplace. Um, I have always gravitated toward options because that's my comfort level, but also I feel like anything you can do in the equity space or in the, you know, the Delta one instrument space, you can do better or equal to or greater than in the option space. Yeah. So I almost right. always you can go always with, go Delta one and options like, right. You exactly. Can, you can get both. Right. Exactly. Um, just put on a combo and poof, you own it. Um, or you can do some kind of a risky and, you know, you kind of sort of own it or you can buy some out of the money calls and you probably don't own it. 
Um, but yeah, there are so many things you can do with options that you can't do with the Delta one instrument and you can even mitigate your decay and all this other stuff. And once you kind of suss it all out, like I said, it's it, to me, it's equal to or greater than the Delta one instrument, whether it be gas, lumber, Tesla, whatever. You'd got this prop firm going, did it become winner take all, right? Like how, what happened? Why did it cease to exist? Like it's, speed became an issue. High frequency became an issue. <laughs> no, um, we kind of dissolved, um, due to my business partner and I just going different directions personally. And that was it. So we, we had made a bunch of money and then, um, I've never been able to make money like this. Right. Uh, sadly, I wish I could, I wish I could now, but I don't know how I've always made money in clumps. Yeah. So what that Ooh. means is that my P and L is many like, people who make it like, this? yeah, people that are high frequency <laughs> traders, guys yeah. that trade cattle, high frequency. And you know, they, they never lose money, but they, they can't scale that big. Yeah. yeah. They, they have a 12 sharp, but they only control $3 million. Um, the P and L that I've always unfortunately had to deal with is like, you know, kind of an upward sine wave. Right. And we were just coming off of a, you know, a crest of a sine wave and I, I was getting pretty bearish on my, on my own expectancy. So I decided to take off the summer and the summer turns into a winter and a winter turns into a year. And then mm. that was kind of the, the dissolution of the firm. But to me, it's always like red queen principle, our buddy Jason Buck would say, right. Of like, Hey, that problem, you're always chasing. You always got to upgrade the technology. You always got to upgrade the everything's going and you start to lose pace with the DRWs and peak sixes and all these groups that have somewhat unlimited resources to throw at the, at yeah. the game. So that's true and not true. So what does the technology do for you? The technology enables you to um, do all the same stuff that you would do in a pit, but better. It allows you to access the trade more quickly. It allows you to an, an, uh, analyze your risk better and more accurately. And it just basically puts a, a turbo on all of your same pit stuff. And the quality of the information that we got, because we were first looked for many banks. Um, so, you know, say for instance, this pension fund in theory has a Microsoft trade and they pick up the phone. Who do they call? I was literally the first call on planet earth for, you know, a dozen different banks. So just by virtue of me being that first stop on the information tree, the quality of information I got was par, par none. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was just excellent. So that was one of the reasons we were able to make money. And then once things became more and more electronified, uh, it's not a word. The, the, the game changed a little bit. Um, and then it changed a lot. And then it actually kind of reverted because, you know, speed is now more commoditized. Yeah. I've heard stories like the Susquehanna guys are just sitting in the pit and they're only, they have bands that they're allowed to trade in. Right. And if they can't, even if it's like you were saying before, this guy wants to let me buy him for 15, right. They're priced at 25 and they're like, Nope, you can only stay within the band. I don't know. Yeah, if so th those guys, it was really like Timber Hill guys which were the, probably the worst paper in Timber Hills now, actually um, two Sigma because they mm. were bought by um, um, the guy in Florida, interactive brokers. Yeah. And then, then two Sigma bought that operation. Um, but there are firms that are given parameters by the guy upstairs. And he says, okay, you can pay a dollar and you can, you can spend a dollar 50 and nothing more, nothing less. That's and the guy, the guy's just like, uh, whatever. And, you know, if a guy comes in and says, I'll sell him for 50 cents. And he's just like, I can't do it. I'm like, fine, yeah. I'm all, I'll right. take everything you got for 50 cents. Let's go. And you know, that, um, discretion was great. Yeah. And just wonder like, why do those firms, it's just, again, not worth their time. It's like, we don't want to get hung yeah. on something. We don't understand just trading this band. But uh, this guy was telling me, it's like, it, they're robots. They're just trading Right, they're doing the human in there, but essentially they're a robot because they can only do this limited thing. 
That's exactly right. So what happens is, is if you look at the guys that run funds or run market making firms or whatever else are typically guys like me that had to really learn it and risk their own money. And if you look at the guys that were, you know, Timberhill guy, number 63, standing in the pit, I have no idea what that guy's doing because, you know, he never really learned a skill set. He was just a, um, a, a, a device in which to get your business executed. My brain goes to the uh, Ready Player One book and movie where all the guys trying to solve the game are like in the, uh, right? They just have numbers. They right. can't do it. They, ha- they had no soul. Going on, we're going to do a, uh, listeners, we're going to do a second part to dive into the strategy because there's lots of good stuff here, but this is all good on the back. So somewhere along there, you got involved with GetGo. Um, tell us what happened there what happened with get-go and all that. Sure. Stuff. So um, the guy that started get-go used to work for me, us, and uh, we lost a bunch of money. And I think it was like, you know, LTCM or the Russian ruble Thai bot. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, you know, 97, 98. And um, it's a good so, life when you can't remember losing a lot of money, what it was from. Yeah. Oh, it, <laughs> yeah. It, it sucked because I remember we, so we lost more money than we had on deposit. So at the, yeah. at the, at the time, well, no, no, the, we lost more money than our haircut, our haircut needed. So our, yeah. our haircut was like, you know, you know, 10 million and we had like, you know, nine. So we couldn't take any money out and we were on closing only. So this is like the worst, this is the closest we ever came to blowing out. And this is the beginning. So we said to this guy, um, you know, you're not fired, but we, we don't have any money for us or for you. So if I were you, I'd quit, but you don't have to quit. So he came back with a buddy of his and they were working on some um, basically electric versions of what other people were doing. And they pitched the idea of what ended up being GetCo to us. And we said, sure, here's some money. And that was the genesis of GetCo. And explain GetCo for the listeners. It became a big thing and then it sort of disappeared. It's still out there? Gecko is now Virtu, sort of, yes. not really. Okay. Um, yeah. So what happened with Gecko is they made a lot of money and then they, they bought Knight after the Knight algo went nuts. But just as then- an elect- basically it's an electronic market mix. Yes. I remember the exact meeting where I was, my brain was blown up by, by Gecko. We were having a meeting uh, after school one day and one of the guys said to me, he's like, okay, no, I've got a question for you. Quiz. What percent of Intel's total daily volume do you think we are? And I knew he wanted the answer to be high so he could feel good about himself. And I, my, my real internal answer was 0.5%. So I said, 1.5%, thinking I'm trying to make him feel good. He's like, yeah. 17 like, no way. No way is it that high. Yeah. And that was when I was like, okay, this, what? We got something. what yeah. are you talking about? And that was when I really, uh, you know, paid attention to the gecko idea. And then, you know, we tried to do more with options and the options thing was always a little bit more difficult. And then as speed became more and more commoditized, um, you know, the and, gecko trade started to, to suffer. And who did they, who did gecko replace the specialists? The human specialists on NYSE, or what? Who did they disrupt? The, the specialists on the NYSE, the people that you see on CNBC, um, the DPM marketplace at the t- at the time it was called DPM, then it went moved to DMM, same same but different. Mm. Um, basically, the the primary specialists that would take down paper in either stocks or derivative products. But that's mainly who that ruined. Mm. Um. All right. Two more things on the, on these glory days. Um, so CBOE, you were a CBOE guy. I was CBOT guy. Then all yeah. these CME guys. What was there competition there? Did you like those other guys? Were you like, oh, those crazy commodity cowboys? 
Like what, what was the vibe in Chicago back in those days between the pits? The, I had never had any real knowledge. I never even went to the Merck floor. I was on the board of trade floor a couple of times. Um, the, the crazy salacious stories that you hear about floor traders are almost always the Merck guys. Um, <laughs> at least to me, you know, those yeah. are the dudes that were like, you know, running around with fast women or uh, yeah. all those stories that you hear that are maybe sometimes true. And well, it is the only pit, as far as I know, that the FBI was had some plants in. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I remember in this year's pit, a couple of guys when the, the first started talking to these dudes. One guy was, was a dentist. The other guy was like a, some other kind of doctor. The other guy was a lawyer. I'm like, oh, these guys are actually pretty smart. You know, they, yeah. they knew what they were doing. And the board of trade to me was maybe a little bit less intellectually robust than the CBOE. And then the Merck was like, I don't know, used car salesman dudes. Yeah. Um, that was my perception, whether it's wrong or not. And it could be totally wrong. That was how it was kind of at the time in my mind. Uh, I think I would back that. Uh, but would you guys ever all get together or <clears throat> co-mingle with them? Like maybe on a boat? <laughs> we had a boat in Chicago. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a, a pretty nice boat. And then we ended up upgrading it to a, a pretty big boat. And, you know, a lot of traders, you know, we would have people with, you know, 150 people on my boat and it would be nuts. And we would have people from all over the world and come visit. And we actually, we took that uh, same boat to Europe and to New York. We would have a, uh, a party in New York twice a year because the boat would go from Chicago down to Florida and then back. It'd have to go over the St. Lawrence Waterway. That's why my finger's yeah. going up. Yeah. Um, and then it goes to the St. Lawrence Waterway and down through New York. And we'd have a party on the boat in Manhattan um, once in the spring and once in the fall. And how, how big of a deal with it? I've heard other guys talk back in the old, right? It was like, you're taking those brokers to Gibson's, you're taking them out on the boat, right? Like to get that order flow. That was how business was done. Yeah. Um, in the, you know, the brokers aren't dumb or nefarious, right? They just yeah. want everything else being equal. They want to make the most amount of money, of money for themselves and for their families. So all they really want from you is to give you good markets and give them fast. Um, that's their incentive and everything else being equal. They just want you to be a cool dude. Yeah. Um, but the, but the idea that there would be, um, worse pricing or slower pricing is antithetical to their money. So God, like it doesn't be, matter how many times you took me out to Gibson's. If you give me a bad fill or slow exactly. fill, you're out. Exactly. Exactly. So what you really have to be able to do is be good at your job. And if you can be cool on top of that and show them a good time, all the better, but you know, being cool or throwing money at a stake at Gibson's is it's a fart in the wind. <laughs> Um, and then tell us one good story about a guy who's like house got repossessed or, uh, something of that nature. When the, when the accounts went the wrong way, got any um, well, we have got a, a million of those, uh, <laughs> trying to think, I mean, I don't, I know a lot of guys that blew out and I don't, I am, I think I'm blessed in the sense that I don't ever get joy out of someone else blowing out. Cause I always feel like I'm next. Yeah. Um, so I never really, uh, you know, like that stuff, but I can tell you one story that was pretty funny. Um, you know, remember the old song by Janis Joplin, uh, Mercedes, my oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, there was phones in the pit and this is in the AOL pit. And, um, one of the guys took a call from his wife and he was yelling at her on the phone, but everybody could hear it. Cause you're standing like three inches from everybody. 
This is and pre-cell phone. You're saying there's like a physical corded there's phone. There's a in the physical pit. corded phone in the pit. So, <laughs> you know, phone rings. It's, you know, this guy picks up a phone and his wife had just crashed their Mercedes Benz. And the, the rest of the pit figured this out from the context of his end of the call. And they all started singing this song at the same time. And <laughs> it was just absolutely hilarious. This guy's like, shut up. <laughs> just, my wife just crashed my car. But uh, yeah, in terms of blowouts, I mean, those, those stories are innumerable. And they're all kind of sad because, you know, those are people with families and all that other stuff. And, you know, that it happens, you know, yeah. I think one of the biggest things that people don't, they, they want to believe that everyone down there is crooked or that everything is like just these, you know, Coke filled orgies or whatever else. I never saw anything like that. Um, I never knew of any insider information. I never knew of any, you know, Coke filled orgies or anything like that. Most guys are just dudes that want to make a living. Yeah. And to me, the best thing of it was you mentioned some of these CME and CBOT guys aren't the smartest tools in the shed. But it gave him a chance, right? It's yes. almost like crypto today or whatever. Like, hey, you didn't have to go to the Ivy League. You didn't have to know all this stuff and get perfect scores on your test. You could exactly. go down there, have the drive, and make a killing. You could be standing next to a guy that has a 1400 on his SAT and went to, you know, whatever college. And, you know, you barely got out of St. Vider somehow. And, you know, you could be standing shoulder to shoulder with this guy. And maybe you make $10 million that year. And that was the dream. Okay, we're cutting part one there, and we'll bring you the rest of all Noel's great stuff in part two. Thanks to Noel, thanks to our editor extraordinaire, Jeff Berger, and thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with either Resolve or part two of Noel. I haven't decided yet. You'll just have to tune in and find out. See you next week. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlt, and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.